pledge allegiance, pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, unless you're kidney or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now if you don't want Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald. Tonight I will be talking about the high watermark of all rock and roll movies, The Beatles' 1964 feature film debut, A Hard Day's Night, directed by Richard Lester. So join me tonight is my friend and Beatles expert from the Pop Culture Beast website, Mr. Aaron Kahn. Hi, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. We're going to be covering, if, if people have not already seen the episode heading, one of the most important, if not the most important of all rock and roll movies. We're going to be doing A Hard Day's Night, which doesn't really need much of an introduction. It's the Beatles' debut film from 1964, directed by Richard Lester. This was kind of a hotly contested episode, so I, I'm glad that you were the one that um, kind of got the first dibs on it. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Highly regarded classic for a good reason. Mm -hmm. So Aaron, before we start, I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. You do work for, for a, um, an outlet called Pop Culture Beast. Tell us a little bit about what Pop Culture Beast is. Pop Culture Beast is a website for reviews and uh, recaps on all things entertainment. I think the site's been around for a couple, like more than 10 years, but I've been with them for two years, ever since I discovered Rock Solid with Pat Francis. A few times here or there, every other show, Pat would mention that he writes for Pop Culture Beast. So I, and he mentioned how he was able to get things from the record label and review them. I majored in mass communications in college. I really like to write journalism as a passion for me, especially music journalism. It's very hard to find a journalism job yeah. uh, in these days and you know, in this time. And I liked getting things from the radio station, but you know, that sort of stopped after going to college so uh once right. i heard about that i wanted to see if there was any way i could get in there and uh it's a volunteer job mm -hmm. you're not gonna get paid for it so but uh no i was still willing to do it and it took a while for to get anything uh going but they were all very helpful and pat ended up helping me get uh in contact with a couple record labels and how to use the pop culture beast email and i've been able to get Get a couple things. Aaron, another cool story that is relevant to our interests here today. Obviously, we're here because we, you know, we we love the Beatles, and as does most of the world over. And you have had a very rare and awesome opportunity to meet one of the Beatles in your lifetime. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, I would love to hear the story and all the details that go around it because it's your, it, it's a a once in a lifetime thing to be able to meet somebody like, like that. Mm -hmm. I met Paul McCartney on April 16th, 2002, uh, during his driving USA tour when he would have been in promotion or on tour and promotion for his driving rain album. Uh, now how that came about as a little bit of a backstory, which I guess I can go all the way back to when I got into the Beatles. I had really gotten into their, it's really hard to say, but I think I always liked music, whether it came from any like children's shows or any kids' uh, videos or any music programs. We got my dad the 1999 reissue of Yellow Submarine. 
and then mm-hmm. just all sort of led up by the time uh the anthology book and the beatles one came out i was uh hooked as far as getting the albums my dad already had a couple of them my dad was very similar to me in terms of tastes uh he liked the music that came before his time mm-hmm. But he liked the Beatles. I, he, I remember him telling me that it was a girlfriend who got him into the Beatles. So, uh, but he had a couple of the later albums, and I sort of completed. Uh, I got whatever he didn't. I just really liked them. I would check movies out from uh, the video store, and mm-hmm. then it was sort of encouraged by my family. Well, there are other groups that are like the Beatles that were from around that time. So, like, yeah, I think right after that were the Miles and the Papas. Uh, there was the Wingspan documentary that was shown, and I found out about the Who, and uh, I just became very interested in wanting to know all about these groups. And then, um, fortunately, uh, in June 2001, uh, my father passed away. I'm so sorry. Which was uh, unexpected. Oh, uh, and uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, the 9-11 things happened. And I re- I, my memory's really fuzzy about 9-11 because my mom tried to keep the TVs off. Oh, right, yeah. During that time. And Understandable. Yeah, and George passed, but in November. So there was a lot of, I mean, there were some good things happen. I mean, it wasn't all bad, but there were there yeah. were some good things, and there were some, but the bad things were pretty bad. So uh, and the music was always, you know, something I came back to. Yeah. So during this time, I can't remember when the concerts were announced or whatever, but I knew at least, but I'm gonna guess like maybe at least 2002 that my uncle had got. This is my dad's brother. My uncle had gotten mm-hmm. the tickets. To go see Paul, I think it was at the first Union Center, which I don't think is there. I think it's the Wachovia or Wells. I don't know what it is now. Now, unbeknownst to me, my uncle was trying to get in contact with Paul's management. There was somebody on my dad's side of the family who knew John and Yoko back in the day and found out, was able to get in touch with uh, Paul's management. And I think basically what my uncle sent in, I don't know if it was an email or a letter. I think he basically just said, you know, that we're going to the show. You know, he's a big, you know, that explained how I was a big fan that I recently lost my father and that, you know, would really mean a lot. You think he can meet Paul, meet Paul backstage or something like that. And he heard nothing until the day of the show. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. And then uh, my uncle read the email and it said he can talk to Paul 15 minutes before the show. So I have this wow. memory of uncle coming to this house here. I don't know how he was able to get away with it. He just said, Aaron, you, know, you might want to bring some stuff. We might be meeting famous people. And I didn't really question <laughs> about it. So I grabbed whatever CD booklets, like uh, McCartney, Venus and Mars CD booklets, a couple of song books that my dad's parents, since they were still selling antiques, they sold, they sold antiques for the longest time. They stopped a couple of years ago. Mm. They'd always be getting me Beatles stuff, like Beatles song books, like, took a couple things we go over to concert venue get some treats or snacks or sodas or whatever and then mm-hmm. um my memory was that he kept trying to talk to the security guards and that um i'm just thinking okay why is it taking us this long to get to our seats and <laughs> and uh it's kind of like in a hard day's night we were taken to a, i felt like we were taken from a room to another room and then a room and then, <laughs> right. and then uh it was kind of like that that whole scene and then i'm just by the time we were at one part, I remember hearing the word backstage being mentioned to us. So I talked about it to my uncle and he said, you're going to meet Paul McCartney. Try to have to understand from his perspective years later that you don't tell a kid that he's going to meet Paul McCartney. I was, I was going to say, what went through your head when he said that? 
I mean, I was getting the feeling that something was happening, but, uh-huh. uh, but then once I heard it confirmed, I'm okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, it was a real eye opener to see, like, uh, we got to go to, to like the whole, like, it really showed like how, like, I haven't really had another experience, like, like seeing the whole backstage of a, a concert. We were yeah. waiting there in the press and a whole, like, I guess what they would call a press room. And there, mm-hmm. there were people from like the this TV stations, the big cameras all waiting there. Remember there, there being one girl who really wanted to meet his guitarist, uh, Rusty Anderson. <laughs> and just like, I want to talk to Rusty. And like, okay. <laughs> and and uh, it's all where the stickers. And then we were shown to another room. Said, okay, well, Paul's going to come in here. So we waited. And then uh, a couple minutes later, uh, Paul came into the room with uh, Heather. Mills. Oh, yeah. That Heather era. Yeah, this was just months before they uh, married. They were still engaged at that time and uh, mm-hmm. just sat down. I remember the, we all said hello and uh, all came up to me and he went, so you're Aaron? <laughs> and, yeah. and then he shook, shook my hand. <laughs> and, he was, and he was cracking. He was really having a good... I remember him being a little bit funny during that time. I remember when uh, we were all getting... After our hellos, we were all sitting down and my uncle just was... I guess I was still holding on to my, uh, I guess it was a Sierra mist or soda or whatever. So mm-hmm. my uncle thing, and I want you to put that down here. And, and Paul just went, Oh, is he having a bit of a whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> just like, like he was wearing sandals too. And he, he just at one point just held up his sandals and went, look at my feet. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, like he's cracking jokes. That's exactly he, the kind of like Paul McCartney personality that I would expect. Like the cheeky, mm-hmm. really all, kind yeah. of off the wall. Yeah, he was talking to my uncle mostly. I didn't know what to say. Uh, and then oh, I wouldn't and, either. I would. I would yeah, be just, just like. <laughs> yeah, but there was but there was no other way that my uncle could have done this because you don't tell you don't tell somebody. Okay, you might meet Paul McCartney. No, that's just like a recipe so, uh, for disaster. <laughs> the one thing that stuck with, I mean, there's a lot, I can remember, not in the, maybe the correct order, but one of the things that happened that night, um, I guess my uncle and Paul were talking back and forth, and um, and I guess the topic of my dad came up, or just, I think my uncle just said, well, you know, his, my brother, his father passed, and I remember Paul looked at me, held my hand, looked at me in the eye and said that, I lost my mom when I was 14 and uh, being a 10 year old, I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of this, but my mom explained it to me the next day. And I think I got after, and now it it says so much more years later that he was trying to tell me everything was going to be okay. He knew the pain and it just so happened. I was wearing a t-shirt with the let it be cover on it, Mm -hmm. which that's the only remark I remember from Heather is that she liked my shirt. (laughs) <laughs> and i think paul saw it and then he starts he uh told the story about how he came to write the song if you're to look up on wikipedia or anywhere it's pretty well cited how he came to write let it be it was a dream about he had about his mother but i found out from the guy who wrote it Unbelievable. he just That's... He, he just said that he was i think it was like a dream that he was climbing up a tree and then he went up to the top and his mother was there just looking beautiful and she just said, don't worry, let it be. So that was like one thing that really stuck with me. Uh, his manager <laughs> gave a bunch of things to us, T-shirts, CDs, including Driving Room, which I had already had at that point. But um, Oh, like he, like he gave you a, co- a copy of it? Yeah, but it was with the new uh, 
slipcase with the tour dates and oh cool i remember a couple of things he signed there was a one of the song books it was like 1963 picture of them in the suits and my some of the other things i remember paul saying um like when um he was signing the song books and my uncle was saying you think you still look the same and paul was saying oh no 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 i don't look the same <laughs> and um he was also talking about the process of what it was like to take a picture and he was saying it was not taking a picture it's like one two three smile and he just kept saying he just kept saying that and he just kept pointing to all the his favorite things in the program like on the back of the program he's given the thumbs up which ended up being the cover for the live album of that tour he was pointing to that and just saying he liked that. <laughs> <laughs> he just liked that and he was uh signing thing i also caught him uh he looked at the CD booklet for Venus and Mars, and he was looking at what on the vinyl record would have been the gatefold, and uh, that always stuck with me that he was just looking at it, looking at it, and, I, and I'm just thinking, he doesn't know what his own. CD. I was saying right, like, he doesn't know oh, what a CD. That's what this looks like. <laughs> it was uh, what I think it was a CD from like '87 or something like that, and uh, then he signed those. He signed the other things. There were pictures wow. being snapped, and um, so you we were there like a total of like 15 minutes. You said I don't know, maybe 15, 20. Maybe like a little less than 30 minutes. Wow. As we were leaving, I remember my uncle saying, what's the first song you're going to play? And he said, uh, hello, goodbye. Then we got out, we went over to the elevator, and I, I guess everybody in the elevator saw that, you know, being like a 10-year-old kid, just go, oh, uh -huh. he's here seeing Paul. And then my uncle told the old people in the elevator, oh, he just met him. <laughs> and the whole elevator lit up just like, oh, was he nice? We made our way to our box seats, and I think maybe like another 30 45 minutes he probably went on yeah he had circus delay opening or he had some sort of oh backup. yeah I, I i think i remember i well i saw that tour and he had like these crazy contortionists and these people like floating through the through the arena and like doing like trapeze acts and stuff like that yeah at the time i didn't get it but then once paul came on there and uh it's all a good show and uh, we didn't get the pictures until like years later, until the Each One Believing book came out. My uncle wow. remembered that Paul had called the photographer by his name a couple times. So I guess my uncle just went to the back of the book or I don't know how he was able to get in t contact with them. And we got a couple. We got at least two pictures. That is so I, I'm just like I'm in awe. What it, what an amazing, amazing mm -hmm. experience that that half an hour must have felt like. I'm not sure if it would have felt like an eternity or felt like two seconds. <laughs> At the time, I was just thinking, because I had this friend who was also a big Beatles fan, probably longer than I had been, and I felt kind of bad that he wasn't. <laughs> he was at the concert, too, and they had mm. offered they had offered for me to come with them, but then once my uncle got the tickets, I, well, my uncle's already got the tickets, and uh, the next day in school, I, it was just... You had to reveal to him that you went yeah, there, stage. There, uh, the way I got to elementary school was I was dropped off at a preschool and then a bus would take us over to the schools. Uh -huh. The teachers there were crying after they found out that I met Paul. And <laughs> I'm and sure. And they were just like, because they knew we had been through a lot. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that kind of confused me at the time. But again, 10 years old. But now, now I can understand why they would react that way. And I brought the, the tour program just to... That was my proof that. Oh, <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> now, have you and Paul hung out at all since then? <laughs> no. The funny thing that happened when he Paul and Heather got married, there were a couple of teachers joking to me like, oh, you weren't invited? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no. I think I would have rather been invited to the his wedding to his newest wife, I think, Nancy. 
do you still have all the like every all the items that he signed? Like, do you do? You still oh yeah, keep I still have them? them all. I had them all in a pop right bag. And years later, uh, Denny Lane signed the uh, Venus and Mars cool. CD book. That's awesome. Did you did you get to meet him too? Yeah, it was at a classic rock art show. It was a bit of a weird experience. It was like <laughs> at the end of two thousand five, like late December two thousand five. So it's by one hundred two point nine WMGK. They did this. It was like uh, artists. Uh, art from classic rock artists so like mm. john lennon ronnie wood uh like all the ones who like many rock stars who made any sort of art and the big guest that day was denny lane nice and uh i wanted to see you know using my interview i wasn't successful trying to have an interview but his manager was like right next to him she said no he's, he's too busy okay the denny, only denny lane's a little prickly <laughs> and uh is very it's a very uh the interview that they did it was hard to understand anything that he was saying and yeah and then uh we all get in line and we find i had like a whole bunch of things to get signed and then we find out it's five dollars per an autograph so we only had like a few things anything that yeah. was wings or anything i i just put it there and oh, okay i gotta pick one thing so i picked <laughs> the venus and mars cover because paul had signed it Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I told you this one before. And yeah. I gave it to Denny. He signs it. Doesn't say anything about Paul's signature. <laughs> and then uh, the friend that I told you about before, he was there too. My digital camera wasn't going. His uncle, his my friend's uncle was there and he ended up snapping the picture of me and Denny. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, that was about it. And I yeah. was just, why didn't he notice the signature? And I was thinking like all sorts of things like he probably there tensions between he and paul which i know yeah. now have been resolved or he just simply did not see the signature i don't know how you miss paul's signature <laughs> but uh then he did he's he's a he's a little out there i i actually have met him twice mm-hmm. and he's both on. times he's been a little he's been he's been a little space casey also too you had a a, a connection with yoko ono as well Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. As far as my connection with Yoko, it was basically the same person that my uncle got in touch with, who got in touch, who then got in touch with Paul's management. Uh, I got to be careful and with feeling uh, relation, but I, the most I can say is there is somebody on my dad's side of the family who mm-hmm. had John and Yoko as clients. Uh, and I'm guessing it was all during that time period when they were in New York. From what I know, uh, they still in touch, um, still working with them. And um, and I knew of this connection as soon as I became interested in Beatles. And I mm-hmm. down and just thought, wow. So um, I knew of this connection for a pretty long time. And uh, oh. I always wanted to get maybe the chance would there be a chance to maybe interview Yoko or in some way maybe by email because I had already gotten the encouragement my first interview with any sort of position uh, going back to Badfinger here mm-hmm. I went to uh, I did had a le- little email correspondence with uh, the keyboardist Bob Jackson who was in the band uh, within like the last few months of the group lasting so like fall 74 up until p am died and then he came back for tom evans's reformed version until tom passed away so um 
really he's only on one album that got shelved and wasn't released until 2000. But I got in contact with him in 2006. So from going from him to you, I mean, that was a pretty big jump. And it's just like, yeah. okay, how do I approach this? So it was Thanksgiving of 2007. <laughs> I'm with my uncle, my aunt, uh, his kids are my cousins. I'm with my sister. We all go to their, I guess their holiday house. I remember asking my uncle, I really want to ask, you know, so-and-so about wanting to interview Yoko. And he said, well, you're going to have to go up and ask him. And I, you know, I had some anxieties about it and he was saying, all right, I'll, I'll yeah. tell him that you're going to talk to him. So I said, oh, I'd like to interview Yoko. And he said, well, uh, what did you have in mind? And I said, well, I already have a couple questions, like 10. And he said, really? And he said, well, email them to me and I'll see what I can do. But it's mm-hmm. really a one in a million shot, he said. The week after, I got an inbox, a forwarded message. And the questions that she answered were eh, kind of basic. Just at that point, I really hadn't explored her music. And maybe uh-huh. I, sh- I should have done so beforehand. But I think more so the fact that she actually, I don't doubt she was at the computer typing in her answers. It was somebody else that typed in her answers and she just dictated. Right. It still came from her. The fact that she just did this for a 16-year-old high school kid who was just doing it for the high school newspaper. Yeah, that's really cool. It's just saying enough, and I'm forever loyal to her for doing that. Yeah. But the one, I think the one interesting thing that came out of it, the the piece, the the Imagine, uh, the Peace Tower Mm -hmm. in Iceland. And I asked, well, why is it in Iceland? And um, she said that uh, it had to do with uh, Iceland's renewal or their energies or how they uh, save energy or I see. Yeah. Whatever. And if you've seen in recent years, her and Sean have been going around. Uh, they even came up near uh, where I went to college or oh, close wow. to it. I went to King's College in Wilkesbury, PA. And mm-hmm. that Wilkesbury, Scranton, PA area has an issue with fracking. So they were up there. I think Susan Sarandon was also up there. And, the, and I remember the radio manager telling me, oh, yeah, Yoko was there. And she didn't sound too... <laughs> She didn't sound too happy because it's just like, yeah. how do you like this? Per- how yeah. do you like- just people just how do you like her music? Well, I just think she's you know unique. Right. Yeah, yeah. For, I'm for it took me another year to finally get around to getting and buying her albums, which for the most part were slowly going out of print on Reiko Desk. Yeah, but now they're all luckily in print. And uh, mm. so yeah, that's my communication with Yoko. I've always considered if I want to do it again. I mean, there's always been, there's been opportunities when she had her latest albums out. Um, I did consider it for when she released "Take Me to the Land of Hell," mm-hmm. but I just never got around to it. I mean, well, it, see if she would do a podcast. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, should, should we get into the movie itself? Do you yeah. want, do you want to start chatting about a hard day's night? This is really exciting. I just watched it last night for the first time in a very very long time, and it's every bit as delightful. And charming as it was, as I remember it being, because <laughs> I watched it so much as a kid. I can't imagine anybody listening would not know about this movie, or it, even if you haven't seen it, I, I imagine that most people would at least know what the movie is and what it's about. It's the first feature film from the Beatles from 1964, and it's kind of a fictionalized day in the life of the Beatles, kind of at the height of their Beatlemania. It's basically 
just a series of romps. It's there's no plot, you know, to be, you know, there's no proper story to the movie. It's just a series of little romps and vignettes and and music videos and songs and that are kind of threaded together by them trying to put on this this program, this television program over the course of a day and and some of the shenanigans and hijinks that ensue from there. So, it's very highly regarded as as not even just like the quintessential rock movie of all time, but even even just as a, as a film itself, it's become very influential. Do you remember the first time you, you, you saw Hard Day's Night? Well, when I was getting into the Beatles, um, I think around the time we gave my dad the 99 Elsa Marine, I think after that, or I think it was the same friend, I think it was after we got the the CD for him. I just became curious about the Beatles, and uh, we rented Yell Submarine. I guess we wa- I think we watched it as a family. I think it was one of the first DVDs we checked out from because we had a DVD player. What my uncle would have given him his first DVD player like almost 20 years ago, so that would be 99. It was like when I would tell people oh, we have a DVD player. Well, what's that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we were still and it was we were still waiting for all the video stores to come to come with DVDs, and one of the first ones they had a. a I don't know if that's one of the reasons why we picked it or one of the reasons why I ended up picking it, but we rented it eventually, I guess at some point between then and before uh, the anthology and Beatles one thing, uh, Beatles one's uh, compilation came out. And I remember liking the movie thinking it was pretty neat. It was unique. And then once I wanted to get more into the Beatles, I mean, it's sort of like, when you get into any band, I mean, great way to serve as like the gateway to a band's discography and their work is a movie. And that can come in the form of a documentary. And uh, I've been working on a list of like what I think are the, the movies to go to if you just want to get into a group's music. And I even think that some of the early E. True Highwood story episodes are like the best yeah. thing. Like they're better than the big budget documentaries that they end up making. Totally. Eat True Hollywood Story and Behind the Music were like staples mm-hmm. of my of my teenage years. Yeah, so I can't really remember the first time I checked out A Hard Day's Night, but I remember it being the one that I would always um, check out afterwards. Miramax re-released it in 2002 on DVD and VHS. I bought it at a Walgreens and I just watched it over and over again. I think I had checked it out a couple times before that, but after I had it on VHS, it was just one of those movies I just popped in like i've probably seen it i would always think that the number of times i've seen, i can't count how many times i've probably like a good 20 or 20 ish oh, yeah. and it just felt like i don't know is this unusual and i got finally got the answer to that question when i went to go see the screen for the 50th and uh which my uncle took me to and i just oversaw these uh this older like middle-aged woman who seemed to be like a, a fan like back in the day talking mm-hmm. to a young girl and they were just talking about the Beatles who their favorite one was and I remember her just saying well how, how many times have you seen this and the girl said well, I don't know 20 times wow <laughs> like okay I'm not the I'm not the I'm not, I'm not the crazy one you're okay oh yeah I've seen it countless times too and, and like it's so watchable and it's yeah. one of my I'm not kidding here it's one of my favorite films of all time I would rank it my third favorite movie with it's... the Godfather and uh, this is Final Tap beating it I've seen it countless times and i still i'm finding little new little jokes and new little details mm-hmm. that i never same. saw before yeah same here like i said when i watched it last night i hadn't seen it in probably oh goodness maybe like seven or eight years it's been a really long time and i bought the newest criterion dvd and i watched like bits and pieces of it but i haven't sat and watched it properly it's a very joyful piece of 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 culture 
in that time period that no other movie really captured quite as well. It was at the 50th anniversary screening. They had a guy introduce the movie and just read like a speech that he had written that thing and uh, they showed the movie. And it seems to show in all the documentaries, specifically the documentary You Can't Do That, which was made for the 30th anniversary of the movie. And for all intents and purposes, this movie was really just meant just to promote an album. It really didn't matter if it was good or bad. It just, we let's just make a movie. <laughs> Right. It's true. And interestingly, though, going off of that, the Beatles were also very particular about what they wanted. They rejected a bunch of offers leading up to Hard Day's mm-hmm. like six or seven, which and at that point, like their management was kind of starting to sweat a little bit. Like, you guys, you got to like you got to do a movie like that was just what they did back in the day. That would be like putting off doing music videos today because you want to find like just the right director or something like that. It was very risky. I'm sure that the quality that the film ended up having was in large part to the Beatles being so particular about what they wanted and what they were okay with appearing in. United Artists, like the whole movie was kind of, if we're going by Walter Sheenan, mm-hmm. our executive producer, he says that he sat down with John Lennon and John just looked in his diary and said, well, we're going to America next month and we're doing something called The Ed Sullivan Show. So this was all before the Ed Sullivan show that this movie was, they, they thought about making a movie. Wow. The thing about them going to America, which they touch upon in the Beatles anthology, was that with the bands that had come from England and went over to America, like none of them had really had any big success or like forgotten afterwards. And there was mm-hmm. the fear that, well, are they going to last if they come over to America? And once they came to America, at that time, America was just getting over the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy. That's right, yeah. And, uh, you know, here are these four guys with these funny accents and uh, <laughs> they make this great music and uh, people just love them. I think the filming from the movie, I wrote that it started in March of 64, so it would have been in just a month after they did uh, Ed Sullivan. I think at oh, that wow. point, they picked Richard Lester. And I think one of the things they liked about Richard Lester is that he had direct, I don't know in what way, by movie or I didn't really get to look up, but he had worked mm-hmm. with the goons okay. who were a huge influence on the Beatles. Uh, once they saw Richard Lester, which at that point, he had directed a couple movies there's one shown like clips of in the Beatles anthology miniseries, which I think is included as an extra on the Blu-ray, that Criterion. Before Hard Day's Night, I think A Hard Day's Night was his first feature film. And I think everything he had done prior was either TV or like short films, short little like 15, 20 minute like comedy sketch movies. Like you said, with the goons, his his sense of humor and, and style was very much in line with, with their, their sensibilities as well. So they, they clicked really perfectly. In watching A Hard Day's Night, it's um, a very, very strong Marx Brothers influence as well in there in, with their banter and their almost almost vaudevillian kind of slapsticky humor that they do and, and real silly, you know, one-liners and, and, and snappy dialogue. It's borrowed very heavily from that time period, like post-silent era of comedy. I think the whole way that the movie was filmed, I mean, some people have remarked that, and considering they were playing themselves, I mean... A movie about the Beatles and some people have considered it like looking like a documentary almost and um the guy who wrote the script was a guy named Alan Owen he knew the, the Liverpudlian language or the lingo takes like a good five to ten minutes to adjust your ears to the to the slang <laughs> that they use mm-hmm. and there's one term I did not that's during George's scene when he's at the the other television producer giving uh the 
the opinion on all the uh, the clothes. Oh, right, right. And George says, oh, I want to be caught dead in these. They're dead grotty. Yes. <laughs> and I, I read somewhere on IMDb that George was not happy with saying that line. But it turns out, um, according to Alan Owen, uh, in that uh, the You Can't Do That documentary, uh, he claims that uh, grotty can't, was invented by Liverpool. He had said something in the movie. He said because when when the um when the guy responds with a, with a, it's what what's that word and he says grotesque. So I'm wondering if it's just kind of like a shortened version of that, like a like the the liver Liverpool version of grotesque. Mm-hmm. Alan Owen's research and trying to get an idea for how the band spoke. He spent the day with them, or he spent an extended period of time with them, and I think he got a good overview of what how each beetle spoke what their role was who they were as people and uh he wrote this thing that the beetles were prisoners to their own fame like they had to keep going to this place and then that place and um there is one line that has that's kind of stuck out for me that it kind of shows that alan owen only spent a day or two with them uh <laughs> when john's going up the staircase and backstage the character of Norm says to him, uh, John, stop it or I'll tell your mother of you. Yeah, that shows that you really didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> you didn't, you, like if you were to do your, like now we all know that John lost his mother when he was like 15. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's just a little, it's just a small part. But I mean, for the amount of time that he had, I mean, he got their uh, personalities right on, like hit the nail on the head there. But there was yeah. that one little line that's always stuck out for me, like, ooh. That's that's pretty funny. You're right. It's it's spot on accurate for their personalities, and it gives the movie almost like a almost a verite feel, even though it's not. It's heavily scripted and rehearsed, certainly, but it captures. It feels more immediate than it actually is. And I think that's the way the Beals were feeling at that point. I, I know mm. with Ringo, he said in an anthology that that whole scene where he's just walking around uh, parading, I guess. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's how he felt. You know, being the guy in the back not feeling like he was a part of the group which i think something that he always carried with him tensions were so high during the white album Mm -hmm. that they knew that there was something wrong when they found out that ringo was going to leave the group i'd like to think that if you were to ask all the beatles who their favorite member was aside from themselves (laughs) they would have all probably said ringo like he's the guy that they need I wonder if, if being kind of a last minute addition to the group after you know pete best was ousted if that kind of made him feel like a permanent outsider in a lot of ways. Well, he was there during the cavern days. And mm-hmm. when they went to Hamburg, he, Ringo was always there with mm-hmm. Rory and the Hurricanes. Right. Or Rory's from the Hurricanes. And he was always there. Yeah. I always get the feeling with Pete, like, I think what they required, they just needed a five piece group. Mm-hmm. The one person that they don't mention in the anthology, Pete Bess is not actually their original drummer, it was a guy named Tommy Moore they don't mention an anthology but yeah i don't recognize that name i think he, i think he was only in the group for like a month but if you were to look like a whole on wikipedia of all the lineups that the beals went through it, their lineup sheet on wikipedia is so precise to the point like the dates and you would think that just reading the whole line of text you would think he was probably in the group for like two or three years now he was only in there like a month <laughs> wow <laughs> I guess they just really didn't have that connect because they knew Ringo for all those years where I guess Pete was just like a last minute sort of a thing. So when I think that over the years they were told what's up with the drummer. It seemed like drummers were kind of few and far between. And then I think what it really hurt was that George Martin anthology said that when he first met the group, he just liked everything about them. But then once he heard them play, the one thing that stuck out for him was Pete. But Ringo was always in that 
almost word for word. He's always in scene A or something. George uh-huh. had this way of describing it. I love that sequence in the movie. That's maybe the only time where any of the four of them get to really show off their acting chops. Oh, yeah. And when you know about Ringo's acting career afterwards, I mean, you can yeah. see that he loves the camera. Ringo went on to do a bunch of other movies. I mean, uh, a couple of them have cult status. Shining Time Station. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was in 200 Motels, which was Frank Zappa's oh, thing. Oh, yeah. I want, to, I want to cover that one at some point. Let's talk about some of like the characters in the film outside of the Beatles, because obviously we have you know the, our four leads. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a pretty wide array of side characters as well, and a lot of them are yeah. really, really fun. Starting with, most importantly, is Wilfred Bramble as a grandfather, and he's a very uh, conniving, mischievous old man who's also very clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's great in the movie. He's like the character that you either love him or you don't. Then as the movie winds down, and he tries to save Ringo, he like makes a 180 and becomes the hero. He's a king mixer, but he ends up being... <laughs> Ends up being the good guy. <laughs> I think it's a fun role. He just chews every scene he's in, Wilfred Bramble. Now, do you know the story behind um, the recurring joke throughout the movie about him being clean? I don't think so. There's like an inside joke in the British entertainment world where that comes from because Wilfred Bramble, before he did A Hard Day's Night, was on a TV show, which was basically like the Stepford and Son of England. Um, it was called Steptoe and Son, and he played uh, the lead in that TV series, but he was like a, literally a dirty old man. His character was very poor, and I, I think he like worked in a junkyard or something like that. He was famous for being this really gross, dirty old man. So when he got the part in A Hard Day's Night, they decided that they wanted to, to shatter that perception, so they made a running joke. When people would see him and see his character, would say, oh, he's very clean. I was reading other things online about the actor, and I get the feeling that he wasn't as easy to work with. I could believe that. <laughs> I just read something like, if only he were as nice as his character was. Or, or, I think in like a YouTube comment section, or I don't know where I read it. So uh, the other people worth mentioning are the roles of Norman Shake. Yes, they're I, very important characters. In who this. I think are based off of two of uh, the Beatles' roadies. Uh, I mm-hmm. think Norm is pretty much Brian Epstein. Played by Norman Rossington. Mm-hmm. Then there's Shake. Given mm-hmm. his height, I'm guessing he's supposed to be Mel Evans. Oh, okay. Yeah, played by John Junk and Shake. That makes sense. And that's a cute sight gag, having Norm be so tiny and Shake is so huge, like just towers over him. And the things I've heard about Mal Evans, uh, that he was the gentle giant. Terrible, terrible what happened when it oh, happened. Yeah. Shake is supposed to either represent Mal or maybe even Neil Aspinall. That would make sense too, yeah. And the other person worth mentioning is uh, the TV directors played by Victor Spinetti. Yes. He might be my favorite of all the side characters. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he every every second of it he just he milks. <laughs> and the other reason why he's worth mentioning is because he was in the next two Beatles movies. Yes. The Scientist and Help and then um the Soldier or whatever role he had in a Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, he was like this real off the wall soldier in Magical Mystery Tour. And and keeping his rock music movie credibility, he ended up also being in Prince's Under the Cherry Moon film in 1986, playing a very similar kind of goofball role. He is so funny in this movie with his furry cardigans. There was a moment when I was watching it last night with him that I completely forgot about because he's the TV director. And so he's they're producing this opera show. It shows them singing this opera piece in their Viking regalia and everything. It cuts into the backstage studio where they all have their headphones on and they're watching through the monitors. And <laughs> and Victor Spinetti's character is sitting there like bopping his head from side to side like he's listening to like a, a rap song. The way he did it, it was so subtle. 
just it was really funny the line i just remember from him is that he won an award it's on the wall in his office i remember there being an imdb when they still had their message boards there was a whole thread with the whole script of the i think the thread was called part of me for asking (laughs) and you would click it and then it would be but who's that little old man (laughs) and they just went through the entire movie's script you had mentioned uh, seeing it in the theater for the 50th anniversary. Yeah. I went for the 40th anniversary, and I was the only person in the theater. Because <laughs> oh. I, I saw like a, like a weekday afternoon screening, and they actually didn't start the movie on time because I don't think they realized that there was anybody even in the theater. So I had to go to the concession stand and be like, are you guys going to start the movie? And they didn't realize that they, that there was somebody actually in the movie. So I watched the whole movie in the theater by myself. It was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is a room full of people when I saw it for the 50th. I'm sure, yeah. I was really surprised that there weren't more people. Oh, there's different scenes in the movie that we've got to talk about. The tr- all the train sequences, they were all actually filmed on a train, not a set. The one thing worth mentioning about the train scenes is that uh, one of the girls there was uh, Patty Boyd. That's right. Yeah, I was going to mention her in a little bit. Patty Boyd, future wife of george harrison and that's where they met right Mm -hmm. and she gets one line in the movie yes prisoners (laughs) (laughs) once again paul's grandfather is trying to uh thwart their plans it's a cute little scene where where paul's trying to get them to eat with them it's it's her and this other girl they're probably like custodial staff on the train or something and so then paul's grandfather you know walks towards him while he's trying while while paul is doing his you know his little flirty thing and is saying watch out for them they're a bunch of prisoners and then patty has her one line prisoners and it scares him off. I think that the, the the real life version with George Harrison wasn't that much different to what Paul did, uh, because I think I think Patty was dating somebody at the time, but George yeah. wanted to talk to her or something. That sounds about right. Because I know with John and Cynthia, Cynthia was engaged at the time. Right, right. Now, I was met when John and Cynthia met. She was engaged at the time, I think. Oh, was she? Okay, that I didn't realize. Yeah. But yeah, they they tried to keep it uh, their marriage under wraps when they got over to America. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that. The whole train sequence at the beginning of the movie is fairly long, but it, it, it moves quickly. The, actually, the whole movie is very fast-paced. It's kind of funny how they start to show a little bit of their, what is now a little quaint, but their uh, anti-establishment views, I guess, or their anti-establishment behaviors, I guess I should say, with that older gentleman mm-hmm. who sits down and they start playing the radio and he, cl- he goes and he closes the window it's kind of like a um poking holes in in the the kind of upper crust privileged class system that that british culture is kind of what was particularly at the time kind of known for after the movie came out that was kind of the audience that the Beatles had kind of won over I mean, the movie was, was really meant to sell a product and it was meant for the kids and teens mm. who were who were into the group, but I'm just assuming with lack of a better term, the adults who were all watching, like the serious movie critics were all going to see this movie and thinking that they, you mentioned it before that they were like the Nick Marx brothers. Yeah. I I wonder if maybe that's what made, what connected them to that older audience was the kind of older style of humor that they were bringing back essentially. This has nothing to do with the Beatles, but I can remember uh, Alice Cooper having a good, uh, he had a good friendship with Groucho Marx. One of the stories that he tells about Groucho uh, is that uh, Groucho once said about Alice that Alice was the last hope for vaudeville. It is kind of like a quasi-circus act, his live show. 
Mm-hmm. Friendships come in the strangest places in rock and roll. And there, there is a Alice and Paul connection along with Groucho. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a. St- he tells it on YouTube. You can find videos of it everywhere. But Alice was given a round bed by Groucho Marx because he was thinking about Groucho wanted to get rid of this bed. Just at, sort of asked Alice, "Do you want it?" And Alice said, okay, "Yeah, sure. I'll t- I'll take it." So uh, he he tells the story that they brought down the bed and. Groucho was guiding them, telling them, okay, just keep it still or just like slowly and mm-hmm. go to Alice's place. He uses, he used it with, uh, he and his wife used, his wife Cheryl uh, used it for, I don't know, maybe a couple years. And then I guess a couple years later, he met, I guess Alice and Cheryl, they met Paul and Linda. And uh, Paul, I guess they were in Paul's house because he, maybe he was given a tour because he said something like, this room here is going to be our meditation room. And then Alice just said, I have the perfect piece of furniture for this <laughs> for this room. So uh, he gave it to Paul. And I think he put he says he put on there, you know, from Groucho and Alice. Or something. And you were mentioned about things happening in the movie that are picked up on future rewatchings. And I get that, that out of a lot of movies. Some of just spot. I think that's why Spinal Tap and The Hard Day's Night are so close to each other because I always keep finding like like the smallest like new joke in there. And um, the documentary mentioned that with the the ad libs, it said that John had the most of them. He seems to be having a ball in this movie more than the other ones. A couple of the John lines cracked me up. Um, yeah. One moment I remember when there would be times where I would be watching a scene. Wait, what did I just hear? Right. And I remember one of those scenes being when it's the first of Norman Shake's fights. Stop being taller than me. And then they're still on the train. So then the guys come over and John says, if you're going to have a Barney, can I hold your clothes? <laughs> Just like, what? <laughs> I guess it means a fight. <laughs> it, even, like, even the use of the word orgy threw me off when I watched it this time. I, I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> like the old man's probably getting into an orgy right now when he when he steals Ringo's invitation to go to the casino, <laughs> and that seems to be the impetus to get them to actually go. Like, oh, orgy! All right, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that um, Richard Lester liked having in there was all the weird vignettes that were like surreal and yes. like out of in the movie. One of them being when they were outside the train, uh, right. bickering with. The other guy asking for their ball back yeah <laughs> which i always i always thought was funny and that this scene that always gets me i think it was one of the ones that was added at the last minute because they needed more stuff for george mm-hmm. apparently and it was the one where george uh, shows shake how to shave oh yeah and john's just playing and john's just playing in the bath it's one of those surreal because mo- george is showing him how to shave but it's not it's face it, he's using the mirror and then John's just singing Rule Britannians. He finally dunks down or he's been hit. And uh, George just oh, torpedoed down again, eh? Just like it's one of those scenes where I think that's the, the one that gets me laughing always. I remember... That is a great scene. 
Seeing that in the theater, I think there were some young like kids there. They were giggling to that. In that scene when John goes underwater and then finally Norm comes to tell them to kind of fetch them to go out and get their car. And George goes, oh, get John is he's in the bathtub right now. And so Norm starts going, come on, John, where are you? And, he can- and so he unplugs the faucet and the water drains and John's not in there. I thought it was funny how he started to panic. Like, John, where are you? Where? Like he would have fallen down the drain or something. It's like, well, clearly he's not in the bath. He couldn't have gone too far. Where like, It's not like the bathtub ate him. And then John comes out all fully dressed. He's like, what are you doing? We got a car to catch. What do you, you know, Stop yeah, playing around you, in the bathtub. What are you messing with that boat for? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's that kind of that kind of absurdism that, that Richard Lester really excelled at and that the Beatles just ate up with a spoon. Yeah, and um, the other thing that comes into mind about that scene is that there's other people using the bathroom while John's taking his bath. Yes. Like that. <laughs> and you can see that John is wearing a bathing suit. There's no nudity. No. <laughs> The movie, it's shot really well. Like the camera work is amazing. I love the Mm -hmm. black and white cinematography. It's almost... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, the black and white. I always wondered about the black and white. Was that the only thing available? But then you know, there, there were movies in color made well before Hard Day's Night. Yeah, Hard Day's but, Night kind of came out at the tail end of the black and white dominance era. Yeah, I wrote here in my notes that the black and white was an artistic decision. Okay. Most of the pictures that you see of the guys from that era in 64 and 65, like all through the, before Sergeant Pepper, most of it's all in black and white. Yeah. So it's like watching still photographs moving. I do think it gives it, it even more of a timeless quality. Mm-hmm. Roger Ebert was interviewed for the documentary and he really thought highly of A Hard Day's Night and said that he thinks that if the movie had been in color, would have dated it. For sure. And I saw pictures of like on the set from that movie. It, I think the first picture I ever saw of, of the movie set in color was on the deep was on the Criterion DVD. It's really and unsettling, it just, isn't it? <laughs> and it looks weird. It's like, oh, that's how it looks. Yeah, it, it's not as magical. It's almost like a lot of the, the with the cinematography and the and the and the black and white. It reminds me a lot of other Criterion films, like French New Wave movies. I think for some reason it seems to borrow very heavily from from that scene, like Truffaut and Godard movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's funny to imagine what like the studio executives must have thought because there was really no other precedent for this kind of movie like outside of maybe you had Elvis Presley and all his movies but those were like legit like I'm playing a character film and then there were some like what they used to call like jukebox musicals that were really corny that were used to promote bands and albums such as what this movie was designed to do but then when this when they gave the studio this kind of artsy absurdist comedy movie that must have really thrown him for a loop i don't think the movie had much of a budget nobody thought that the movie would do any also they just thought well whatever we lose from the movie we'll make up for in the album sales ah uh, yeah and uh they wanted to make sure that they had at least a couple songs for the movie and uh the way they would do it and with the whole uk and the us both of the first two beatles movies that the albums here released in america were more so uh scores like mm-hmm. the first side was the actual songs and then the instrument uh the orchestration from george martin on the other side and all the songs they picked were all good i think they had seven songs one of them got deleted there was another song played for the concert at the end and i was uh you can't do that i think it's one of the only cut scenes that still exists from the movie i believe mm-hmm. and they had everything else the only song that they did not have at the time and i did not really again it's one of those facts that i probably figured out before but then i don't think i ever knew about this until last night that they filmed this whole movie really without a title i read that uh i think the working title for the most part was beatlemania but they really wanted one of the songs in the movie 
to be the, the movie title. And at that point, all the songs they had were not any good. So A Hard Day's Night wasn't written until the very end. And it, and the title A Hard Day's Night came from uh, Ringo, his misuse of the English language, <laughs> which also inspired like things like uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah. That's what Walter uh, Sheenan says, that he was having a chat with John, that they didn't have a title. John just sort of said, uh, well, during sessions, you know, Ringo misuses the English language and, you know, it's been a hard day's night. Walter Sheenan called the production studios or whoever and asked if that was a good title. And I don't think they thought it was a good title, but then they asked everybody else around the place and they thought it was a good title. But they had to put the song in the movie and they what are we going to do with the song at that point the movie had already been shot how are we going to put it in there well we'll put it in the we'll put it in the opening credits yeah when they're running their fans that you know, be the music that so it needs to be something fast-paced so they came up with the song i think they right wrote on. it like overnight didn't they like right yeah, after they, 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 yeah. Something, something like that uh, i think walter sheenan said that he said that uh, they, they had written it on a matchbox <laughs> sounds about and, right uh, and they played it right in front they played it for him, right? Like before it was recorded, right in front of Will. Like a private performance for him. Wow. <laughs> and um, and just went okay. Didn't think it would be a hit single. But he didn't think it would be like this classic. He could also be seen as like a precursor to uh, what Paul did in later years. Because I think the whole Lennon McCartney thing, it's an agreement between the two of them that they would share whatever songs they worked together as. Mm-hmm. And I think with A Hard Day's Night, that's John's song. Yeah. But with uh, that whole, I mean, maybe Paul wrote some bits of it, but it's kind of a precursor to the thing of writing a song in just a short amount of time. Because Paul had, I think, a similar situation with, uh, I don't think it was under the same circumstances, but I'm pretty sure he wrote Live and Let Die pretty quickly. I remember in the Wingspan documentary, as flawed as it is with being one-sided, it I still like it. And if you don't know the story of Wings, then it's still good. But uh, one of the things that uh, Paul said was that they had the song done. They gave it to the guys over at, uh, I guess it would have been United Artists. They just said, okay, that's good for a demo. Where's the song? (laughs) Like, this is the song. And it kind of ran into the same situation with the next movie. Because Help wasn't going to be called Help. It was another one of Ringo's Mm Eight Arms to Hold You. That's it, yes. Hard Day's Night worked. Yeah, it does. And it works so well in that opening sequence. I had read that that opening sequence had to be shot twice because the first time they shot it, I think it was the director of photography was holding the the film, but the crowd hadn't quite dissipated yet. And so I guess when he was walking on the set, some of the mob thought that he was a beetle. And so they started chasing him. When he was running, he dropped the negatives of the film and they got trampled on by this horde of girls. (laughs) And so they had to go back the next day and reshoot that whole sequence because it was all missing. And I love to, in the very first seconds of the movie, the, the first two seconds as it, as it opens, George falls flat on his face and Ringo, go, Ringo goes toppling over on him. And John turns around and starts cracking up because George had ripped his outfit and they just they just keep going. And it's, the, it's such a funny, endearing way to, to, to throw you right into the energy of this film. Mm-hmm. It's great. We should actually, since you mentioned that, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the songs in the movie? Yeah, sure. So in A Hard Day's Night, there's the album and then there's the movie. The movie has six songs. The album has 13. Side one in the UK version had um, yeah. featured all the songs in the movie in the order that they appear. And then side two was all new compositions that were not featured in the movie. 
um, including You Can't Do That, which you had mentioned was, mm-hmm. was cut from the film. Yeah. Um, as, you're talking, as you're talking about this, mm-hmm. I have, I mentioned in the Muppet show on Rock Solid, but uh, I didn't mention what I do for a job. What I do for a job is uh, last year and a half or so, I'm a lister for uh, Goodwill for their e-commerce website. Mm. which works like eBay. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I did clothing first and then since the beginning of this year, I've done jewelry. The other reason why I'm there, uh, there are records that come in and um, I list them in lots. I get creative with some of them. And uh, (laughs) over the the years, I, I did a whole Woodstock lot just recently and I saved up a bunch of Woodstock artists for just like the last couple months. So cool. And over the years I have, purchased a couple of Goodwill albums and the two most valuable albums I have I have them right here in front of me mm-hmm. are the UK versions of A Hard Day's Night in Hell that means they have to have come from England because they didn't come here uh, to the States until they were released on CD I was saving up all my money because I thought that they were going to go up for bid because that's how I would get my other things but mm-hmm. from that day onward it would just be a buy it now sort of thing. so I was getting like all my money ready and then uh, the wares manager just said I'll give it to you he said that he would do it a $30 buy it now and I said wait so I go talk to the wares manager did you tell him that I put the Beatles records for $30? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I found out that Help is a reissue from like 69 to 71. But Hard Day's Night, this is the original. And I have it right in front of me. The first side is all the songs. And it says, from the soundtrack, United Artists film, A Hard Day's Night. And then side two has any time at all. I'll cry instead. Things we said today. When I get home, you can't do that. And I'll be back. I'll cry instead. That was... I remember the video that I would rent at the video store. At the beginning of the video, there was a little like two-minute clip of I'll Cry Instead. But it was just a montage of like pictures. And like, I think they just made it there in the 80s. And they just threw it on to the beginning of the movie. But I remember that too from when I was a kid. Yeah, it was in the video that I rented from the video store. And I think it was that video was made like but probably at least sometime in the mid to late 80s. And then the movie would just start. Now on the newer two-disc one from 2002 and the Criterion one, it's not on there at all. The songs that are in the movie, obviously we talked about A Hard Day's Night, which is a mm-hmm. great classic song. Everybody knows. Then the next song they have is I Should Have Known Better, mm-hmm. which they play in their opening train sequence when they're playing cards and are mm-hmm. keeping Paul's grandfather in prison so he doesn't stir up any more trouble. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene when they, it's just one of those great nonsensical lines when they find him and he says, congratulate me, boys, I'm engaged. Yes. <laughs> no, and you're not. <laughs> not this time. I'm just, it's yeah. just one of those things you got to think about. Like, not this time. This has happened before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great song. I love the harmonica part in that. I remember seeing it on the big screen, uh, like a couple minutes into the movie, I had already noticed that there was like a part of a sound that was missing that nobody was recognizing. I don't think anybody was picking up on it, but I'm thinking something's missing here. And it wasn't until they played, uh, until I Should Have Known Better came up and it cued George's guitar solo that it sounded like it was off in the far off distance. And everybody was just, well, well, it was just like, like, <laughs> like a little chatter going on. Somebody ran up the stairs of the theater. <laughs> And got down back and got it back. Oh, how funny. I was thinking maybe it was the mix or something, because I know some of the songs are mixed a little weird in the yeah, in like different versions of the movie. Miramax, I know people in the Amazon reviews were complaining about, oh, the movie's not in the right speed, the picture's cut, but like the aspect yeah. ratio. And uh, 
one of the things about the songs and the mirror, I think the Miramax and the you can't do that documentary. When I was listening to the songs, I'm thinking these sound really slow. Yep. Like John's voice sounds too low. Yeah, I noticed it mostly in the song "And I Love Her." It was the one that really stood out for me. Like Paul sounded, it was a little like like he was lumbering through it. Mm-hmm. The next song comes a little bit later when Ringo has a little bit of a temper tantrum and they're trying to cheer him up mm-hmm. because the producer touched his drum kit while they were setting it up for the TV special. And it's the song "If I Fell." It might be my favorite on the album. Just lush and immaculate harmonies from them, and it's just a perfect perfect melody. It's a wonderful love song. You've mentioned about funny accidents, uh, but, but like right in the beginning of the movie with George splitting his suit. Mm-hmm. I think there was another mistake caught during uh, I Fell. I think uh, George's amp like goes back a little bit and they just kept it in there. I noticed too, speaking again of mixes and everything that because um, in the song itself, like on the album, in the second verse, mm-hmm. when Paul says, if our new love was in vain and his voice kind of cracks. In, yeah, that's when I, my yeah, and then it was different in, in this version. I don't remember ever hearing when he when he has that same line, but if his voice cracks even more and he actually like almost loses pitch for almost the entire line. I'm like, that's that's interesting. Yeah, the stereo version they cut it. I remember reading an article of like people who were I guess they were all critics just listening. They heard the mono of If I Fell. And when Paul's voice cracked, everybody in the room was high fiving each other and cheering. Really? <laughs> like they were getting all excited. I'm just thinking really <laughs> just why why would they do that yeah i guess i just never really because my ownership of the albums was before this i mean the only time you could get them was the 87 cds which i had of uh most of the later ones that my dad had and then i completed the rest and then mm. i was given the music after he passed and that was what i listened to for years and years and i ne- never really noticed like anything but people were not happy with those cds and they yeah. came out with the remastered ones and, and it just as we're speaking it's funny because the, just this week i finally took the plunge and uh, i got the mono box up i saw that on your instagram yeah amazing yeah. it's i have that too and it's a, a phenomenal collection i just always stuck with the stereo i didn't i mean whatever you end up with it he'll be happy with it but yeah with me i just never really took the time i never really knew that there were that many differences in the mono mixes and that it, they're at different speeds or whatever yeah. it's fascinating isn't it yeah and the one thing that really sticks out and um of all people lemmy motorhead uh-huh. in his documentary about him which is just called lemmy mm-hmm. came out 2010, 20, I bought it on DVD when it came in 2011. And uh, the beginning scenes in the movie, he talks about going to see, he, he, he actually saw the Beatles at the Cavern. And that just goes among his other credits of being a roadie for Hendrix and a bunch of other things that Lemmy got to do. Wow. And in the beginning scene of the documentary, he goes over to Amoeba Records. He's looking in the B section, trying to find B, and he just goes over to the cash register and asks, do you have the Beatles in mono? And like, no, we all sold out. 
All right. So what's the next thing Lemmy does? He goes to Pat Benatar. That's <laughs> <laughs> our out. And then someone comes running up to him and says, and hands him the set. And Lemmy just goes, how about that? And it turned out that one of the store owners gave up her copy to Lemmy wow. and just said, well, I couldn't deny rock and roll royalty and you're going to love them. And then Lemmy said, and Lemmy just keeps going, well, yeah, that's, it's the monomixes. It's the way it was meant to be. And he just speaks about it with such passion. It's true. They put a lot more time and effort into the monomixes because that was the primary way of mm-hmm. hearing the music at the time. Stereo was pretty new. And a lot of the stereo mixes were really, really heavily separated and very bad. It wasn't really known how to mix stereo all that well. So that's why like, all, some of the instruments are on the hard left channel and some on the hard right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, just, it just sounds so awkward because that wasn't really how you did it. They're just like, oh, cool. We can put different things in different speakers. Have fun. <laughs> and the first two Beatles albums, you, I think the mono is the one you have to go to because the yeah. stereo separate the music and the songs on two sides of the channel, which sounds weird in the car. Yes. It sounds weird, too, when they like played at a grocery store because a lot of times... They're only mono mixes, or only mono stereos, and so there's like you just hear uh-huh. a vocal and a tambourine line. I've actually I was at a party too, um, a couple of years ago, like a beach party, and and um, or it would no, it was a pool party at somebody's house, and they had a speaker on one side of their in-ground pool, and on the other side they had another one, and they were playing the Beatles. They were playing early Beatles. And it was weird because you would swim to like the right side of the pool and you would hear the vocals and the drums and then you'd swim to the other side of the pool and then the same song you'd hear the bass and the guitar and no vocals. It was really funny. So the next song we have is is George's song, George's only vocal that he has, although his his song Don't Bother Me appears in the movie during the club scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But his only his only like true vocal performance in the movie is Lennon McCartney track called I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, which is a really nice little song. Before this dance is through, I think I love you too. I'm so happy when you dance with me. I don't want to kiss or hold your hand. If it's funny, try and understand. There is really nothing else I'd rather do. Because I'm happy just to dance with you. The funny thing I found with 2002 DVD, George Martin's thoughts were he gave a, like a track by track review of all of the songs in the in the movie. And uh, he introduced it by saying, and this just one of the many reasons why I loved hearing George Martin speak. The first few songs that he talks about are I'm Happy Just to Dance With You and then a couple <laughs> of the other. And he just says, well, it really wasn't one of their best. <laughs> it's just like so polite in the beginning and then, then he just proceeds to rip on i mean they're not bad songs but i mean they're not up to the extent of like you know hard day's night or uh can't buy me love right it's not like a top tier beatles song but it's fine the next one's and i love her i give her all my love that's all i do and if you saw my love you'd love her too Another really beautiful Paul ballad, love ballad, but surely written to Jane Asher. (laughs) I was just going to say that, yeah. Spanish guitar from George. Mm -hmm. And I like the percussion that Ringo uses on that, too. He does not use a drum kit. I do, too. And it really sounded great. When I listened to the masters for the first time, I remember that really sticking out. Yeah, for sure. There was a good story in the documentary that when they filmed that scene, Richard Lester wanted a close-up of Paul. (laughs) 
but they couldn't get the right equipment. And they wanted to do like a tracking shot, to, like circle around his face. I don't know what they would wanted to use, a dolly or something, I guess something like that, but they didn't have it. So what they ended up using, pretty sure this is correct, but they used the child swing, like just circling around. Hmm. Up all. It, it just, it sounds like it's not true, but. That's interesting, yeah. And it doesn't when you watch the footage, it doesn't really look. No, but it's a like serious. Right, it's a gorgeous yeah. shot, though. Mm-hmm. Absolutely beautiful. They nailed it. And I read too, but with that same moment that um, during the dailies, I guess some, one of the studio executives kind of came in to see how it was going, and they saw that, and they made a comment like, "Oh, do you realize how saturated that is? Are you sure you want that?" And Richard Lester said in response, "We spent all day trying to get that shot. We're not changing it." And then next we have Tell Me Why. They use that in the movie to start their TV special that they finally, just in the nick of time, made it to. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. Well, I gave you everything I had, but you left me it's fine. This is an, another one that's maybe a little forgettable. It's another one. Of the, it's the other song that uh, George Martin was not as in, as polite about. It's good, but they, they had better ones. Yeah. And then the other Died in the Wool classic is Can't Buy Me Love. Can't Buy Me Love. I'll get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Because I don't care too much for money, but money can buy me love. Maybe the most iconic scene in the movie, but it's the well, one that everybody knows where they're frolicking and running around the, 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 the field with wild abandon while the song's playing. The whole idea of Alan Owen wanting them to feel like the Beatles are prisoners to their own fame. Mm-hmm. Like that scene when they get out of the theater, that's their freedom. When they shot the scene, John wasn't there. They put his scene, they just threw him in there afterwards. Oh, yeah. He was accepting an award for his first book in his own right. And uh, the last shot, when the scene ends, it shows when George says, sorry, we hurt your field, mister. Um, It shows that there's only Paul, George, and Ringo there. It's one of those moments where they really kind of, I know it's a cliche to say this, but where they really did kind of invent music videos. Richard Lester said that he was given some honorary award by MTV for mm-hmm. inventing the channel. At the time when the Beatles first hit the scene, they were seen as so dangerous and so rebellious. You know, these young mm-hmm. kids who are trying to, you know, stick it to authority and rabble rouse. And, but it's so tame now, <laughs> you know, like trespassing on somebody's <laughs> football field or mouthing off to this older veteran on a, on a train who wants to read his newspaper in peace. <laughs> It's just funny how different times are now compared to then. And when the Stones came around, then the Beatles were seen as the good the good guys. Right, that's true. As Andrew Lou Goldham, the Stones manager, I think that was his whole thing. Like, okay, the Beatles are the good, you guys are going to be the bad boys. They were all good friends. And mm-hmm. one of the funny things about the Stones is that one of their first hits was a cover of a, a Beatles song. Yeah, I Want to Be Your Man. Yeah. Which was in the movie, which is in A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, it is. Ringo, Ringo's jamming with his friend. There's a couple of songs from the With the Beatles album that are in there. The other one being uh, All My Loving. Yes. There's that great scene with uh, Ringo and uh, 
that one guy that just keep looking back at each other and jumping up and down. Yeah. <laughs> like inventing like punk rock dancing, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a great moment. My other favorite moment too, that I had forgotten to mention too, when we were talking about John being one of the highlights of the movie is the scene backstage when he's walking and he stopped by uh, Millie, who's played by Anna Quayle. And she, and she says, mm-hmm. Oh, you must be him. And he goes, no, <laughs> and it's kind of a back and forth, you know, him pretending that it's not actually him. And then finally she puts her glasses on. She goes, oh, no, you don't look like him at all. And he gets offended and walks off. Like, you look more like him than I do. <laughs> There's other random stuff that happens that I like. Um, mm-hmm. Especially when they're in the when they're putting on the wigs. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and it's just one joke after another. Just, yeah. That was another like, scene where I picked up on a lot this time that I hadn't Ring, noticed before. Like Norm's going... Ringo, what are you up to, page five? Page five. <laughs> and oh, he's reading the Queen. That's an in-joke, you know. You can get an idea for all the Beatles uh, voices. Mm-hmm. I mean, after being a fan for so many years and, and hearing some impressionists, one person that's worth mentioning who I would recommend for people to check out if they haven't already, is a guy named Stevie Ricks. He impersonates not only all four Beatles, but like a whole bunch of classic rock people and... Uh, He's he's amazing. There's a great special feature on the Yellow Submarine DVD where one of the voice actors just scales like all the Beatles and their voices. Paul is the highest. Like he takes up his sentences. So he's he's always up here. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, John and George, I think, are like kind of in the middle. John's a little. John seems more like monotone. And more serious. Yeah, like I guess we can talk about the other Beatles movies. I can give my. Sure, yeah, absolutely. But they're mostly good. Uh, hell, that mm. one was done with Richard Lester. I don't think they had Alan Owen. The plot for that one, I remember watching a YouTube video review of it uh, from a YouTube channel called uh, Blame Society. They're known for doing uh, their Darth Vader parody, Chad Vader, which is a whole thing mm. about Darth Vader character running a grocery store. <laughs> They th- that show ended. That's how they got their claim. And now they have this show where these guys watch these movies that are some of them are called classics, some of them are lost mm-hmm. gems. Uh-huh. They watched Help, and I think they summed it up that they weren't really all that. Even though I really liked the movie, they they were they thought it was still good, but there really weren't any other side plots. Like it was just really just Ringo has this ring. How do you follow up to a hard day's night? That's hard. I remember an anthology, they were going to make it in color. And George makes a comment just sort of like, they were able to make this one in color. And he sort of says it like in a mocking tone, like kind of hinting that A Hard Day's Night was bad. I mean, aside from Yellow Summer, it was the first one that I watched. I think it's good. I think I may enjoy that album, the Help album, more than Hard Day's Night. Although the, the one thing to note about Hard Day's Night, uh, it was a pretty historic, it was a pretty notable album for them. It was the first one with all original compositions. Right. No, Help had a couple. Act Naturally is on there and Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Mm-hmm. But um, I like Help, but compared to Hardy's Night, it is weaker in comparison. There yeah. really isn't all that much. Uh, the plot itself is not a movie that would be made today. <laughs> no, absolutely uh, not. They went all around the world for that one. Yeah, yeah. It was just for an excuse. For, and they, it was just an excuse for them to just go to places that they've never been to. Like, oh, let's go to the Bahamas. We've never been there. Right, right. And you can see that they're really enjoying themselves. Mm -hmm. They were high as kites during (laughs) the making of that movie. And I think a couple (laughs) scenes, the scene in Buckingham Palace, they just kept cracking up. Yeah, they couldn't, they could not control themselves. 
but there's some good actors in there. Victor Spinetti's back in there. Yeah. There's Eleanor Braun. The guy who plays the main antagonist is good. And the thing about mm-hmm. Eleanor Braun, she partly inspired Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. When I first watched Help, the first actor I recognized immediately was uh, the assistant to Victor Spinetti's character, whose name I cannot think of. What Rory? Um, Ray uh, Kinnear. Yeah, Roy Kinnear. Roy and Kinnear. Yeah. Rory's a real known because he's Baruch's uh, old dad. Yes. Yes. The Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> They're the least. It's at the bottom of the list, but it's not really a yeah. proper movie. Right. It was, it was a TV movie. It was like an hour long, so it's really not all that much of a movie. Yeah. I think the one thing that can be appreciated from him is that is just the musical sequences. For sure. They they all look great. I mean, we said that a hard day's night really doesn't have that much of a plot. Right. And this does not have a plot. It <laughs> not only does it not even have a plot, but it's like it's almost off-puttingly psychedelic. And the part of the experience is that the movie is in color and it looks great. I mean, all those videos sh- great in color, and yeah. it was shown on Boxing Day in black and white, which is ridiculous because there's so many amazing color sequences, like the flying mm-hmm. sequence. The yeah, submarine is good. It's great. It's a great way for kids to get mm-hmm. into the Beatles because of the animation. Yeah, I even remember in the uh, the John Lennon. A documentary uh, called John Lennon Imagined that came out in 88. A very young Sean Lennon is interviewed. He eventually saw a movie called Yellow Submarine. So even he was introduced to his dad's music. <laughs> like, that's every kid's introduction to the videos that they watched Yellow Submarine. And then there's um, Let It Be, which is a movie that more or less lost, but then again, it, it, it is, and it's widely bootlegged. I've never um, seen it from start to finish. I've only seen kind of the famous moments. Yeah, this is my memories of Let It Be as a nine-year-old. It just confused me that any we were one of the first families to, I think we were one of the, we were the first in our family. I, I'm pretty sure we were like one of the early people who had a high-speed internet. Oh, wow. <laughs> when, when it was, um, when it was uh, at home.com, and then at home went out of business, and then Comcast bought them. It just confused me that, no matter how hard I searched, I could not find Let It Be anywhere. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to come by. And um, then my mom had this idea, well, let's go on this website. It's called, uh, you know, and she showed me eBay. Now, the way I remember the auction is that we had to be, this has to be wrong, but the way I remember it is it was an auction that we had to be the lowest bidder. I don't know if that was, I don't know if eBay did that sort of thing then. I mean, there was a time when Amazon had their own eBay sort of thing with Z Shop. Okay. But no, we got it from eBay. We won the auction and they sent the video. It was uh, copied onto another VHS, but I didn't care. Mm -hmm. Nor nor do I think, I just thought, okay, if this is let it be, then, you know. I think I liked it more so because I found the movie. It does slow down people. I still think it's a good movie. It's still a good movie, but um, I mean, the one thing that they tried, Paul was more or less trying to do what is now known as reality TV, that he was mm. trying to have the idea of recording. You could get to see the Beatles record in the studio, yeah. which you do get to see, and it is a it is a unique experience, but it's also very, it can be slow at times, and they were able to cut it to like 81 minutes. Oh, really? It's not, it's not a very long movie. But for the hmm. longest amount of time, it's never been released on home video. I mean, it was released on VHS at one point, on Laserdisc. Yeah. But they were quickly removed off the market. Hmm. And I always thought that the thing that 
kept it from being released on DVD mm-hmm. was because Paul probably regrets making it and that he doesn't come off very well in the movie. But um, not just this year, it was announced that uh, on the 50th of the, the Rooftop concert, we're, we're getting a new uh, Let It Be movie. Really? Yeah, it came out on the uh, 50th anniversary of the Rooftop concert. Oh, wow. It was announced that uh, there's going to be a new Let It Be movie, which Paul was already hinting at. Wow. That there would be a new edited version, and it's going to be edited by uh, Peter Jackson. But uh, the, it also mentioned that the original movie would get re-released. Oh, that'd be really amazing. Which I think I would only accept this if it's included with this new movie. I think we all, I mean, at this point, everybody's seen the movie. The Ron Howard documentary came out and they put the Shea Stadium thing. I would have bet, I would, I was so sure that they were going to release the Shea Stadium show on DVD in some way they performed for the 50th and nothing. They only showed it in theaters and really? Like they only showed it in theaters and okay. I know that, I, that was weird. There's some fear that this the original cut it may be a theaters only thing. Mm. I mean, I think it should be. Re- I would hope that they would put it with this new version of the movie. It's about time we're we're overdue for an official release of that film. Well, I enjoy all five Beatles movies in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, of them, Hard Day's Night. I think is uh, easily the best of them. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 just so deliriously entertaining. No wonder that people just fell in love with them. They're so charismatic in the movie. It's so easy to watch. It's like it's like comfort food. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I tweeted yesterday that it's, it's like watching a, a hug in film form. Still influential to this day, and I think always will be. There's really, there's been a lot of movies that have come out that are like A Hard Day's Night, but there's really also never really been anything like A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, I watched the movie a lot, and uh, I think it's like a great representation of uh, the Beatles and what, what it was all yeah, about. Yeah. Absolutely. And a wonderful time capsule. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I mentioned, the whole Mm -hmm. um, scene where they're in the the press conferences and the interviews, that was all improvised. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? They didn't, they were supposed to film outside, but then there were all the press there. So they just shot all these little ad libs, just all these little jokes like, uh, how'd you get to America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? One of my mom's favorite lines was, What's that hairstyle you're wearing, Arthur? Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> now you know what it is that John Lennon writes on that pad when she asks, when the reporter asks him if he has any hobbies. No, I've never. <laughs> he writes the word tits, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why she reacts with such like horror. <laughs> So for more from Aaron, you can follow him on Twitter at Aaron underscore Khan and at Khan underscore records on Instagram. As of this episode's release, Aaron has a new podcast called Albums Uncovered, where he goes track by track for some of the most famous albums ever made. And you can subscribe to that on iTunes. If you want to follow the show, we're on Twitter and at Instagram at Rock Movies Pod. You can also follow my personal Twitter handle at Josh F618. You can reach the show via email at moviesatrockpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Lastly, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, good or bad, in order to help other people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, Aaron, you have a great night. Thanks so much again. All right. And I will I will talk to you soon. Okay, bye. T- take care. Bye-bye.